Hello, and welcome to our Stepping Stones podcast, where we discuss supporting Americans through every step of their journey here in the UK. My name is Carlo Gray. I'm a partner at Buzzercott, and I'm delighted to be supported and joined today by... I'm Jamie McLemore. I'm a partner in the US private client tax team at Withers in London. And I'm Richard Orgeson. I'm the CEO of RFR. And I'm Hugh Llewellyn, an Associate Director in Buzzercott's US-UK expatriate tax services team. So in this episode, we're going to be discussing our client, Shirley, um, who is an American purchasing property here in the UK. So perhaps we should um, discuss her her situation. She is an American who came over to the UK a few years ago. She's been renting a property here in London. Um, She's recently got married to a British national, Simon, and uh, they're looking to start a family and to move to a bigger place uh, in London with ample accommodation. So um, Shirley is aware as a result of being an American, um, living here in the UK, that there's both US and UK tax issues to be thinking about. And uh, in this case, Shirley is the the breadwinner of the two, the major breadwinner, and she is going to be putting in the majority of the funding for the um, property purchase. So um, without further ado, perhaps, uh, Richard, you could help set the scene uh, with your experience um, working with Americans here in in London, um, how you perceive the property market at the moment. Uh, is it hot? Is it cold? Um, over to you. Um, thank you, Carla. Um, I'm assuming that they're going to buy something sort of in the prime market. So I'm going to talk mainly about the prime markets in a context of where we are. And I think it's important to differentiate the mainstream market and the prime market. A lot of the noise we see in the media is about the mainstream market um, the prime markets are different from the, the mainstream market. They're characterized by highly discretionary buyers. There's much more international buyers, almost on par with domestic buyers. There's a higher proportion of cash buyers, smaller volumes, scarcity of supply, uniqueness of properties, and a higher proportion of off-market transactions. And I think also the mainstream market is more closely correlated with GDP and unemployment, and therefore will be more affected by the economic outlook that we're seeing. Um, in terms of the prime markets, I think actually it's a very positive outlook. And I think that picture is actually reflected globally. I think a lot of the listeners will, will know that in their home cities, actually, there's a very positive sense of, of the property markets. And actually, in many ways, London has been a laggard in, in its growth compared to, to foreign cities. I think if we're going to look and understand the London market in the context of buying into it, it's good to understand the history of the last few years. And, and briefly looking back even further. So if you look at the last 30 odd years in the London market, we saw 20 years of positive growth, often double digit growth, uninterrupted growth, save perhaps for that global financial crisis in 2019, which was the only blip on that sort of upward trajectory. Um, Then in 2014, we saw the market stutter. uh, And that came about because of stamp duty increases, a very dramatic rise from seven to 12%. I'm sure we're going to talk about that in the context of of, uh, Shirley and Simon. And and that stalled the market. And then we saw the sort of Brexit vote in 2016 and the political chaos that followed the next few years. And really between 2014 and 2019, London experienced a very difficult time in the prime markets. We saw transactional volumes off by 50%. We saw values fall by 20%, very generically, of course, but a a broad sense of 20 to 25% falls. 
Now, in December 2019, the Conservative government won an election, a big majority. It cleared out two big issues for our property market. One was the risk of a socialist government. And I don't pass comment on politics, but obviously in high-value property context, a socialist government is not seen as a positive. And also, it cleaned out Brexit. And again, I'm not commenting on whether that's good or bad, but it cleaned out and resolved Brexit once and for all. So suddenly, in January, February of 2020, there was this huge surge in demand for prime property. We saw a billion pounds worth of transactions over 5 million alone, and this huge surge in demand. And that sort of indicated that the market was actually going to have a fairly strong few years. But of course, then in March 2020, COVID arrived. We had our first lockdown of three UK lockdowns, and our market shut down during that first period. And I think at that point, most of us were quite fearful for the market and where it was going to go and what would be everybody's priorities if and as we came out of, of that scenario. And we were lucky. We opened up in May 2020, one of the first industries to come out of lockdown. And we were all caught off guard by this extraordinary surge in demand for property. And that demand was partly explained by that Boris, that conservative demand that I was talking about from the election. But actually, it was, it was reinforced by this huge behavioral demand that came from our experience of lockdown. So people suddenly, the home was so important. Outside space was important. Inside space was important. Home offices were important. And that drove us to, to, to acquire properties in volumes that we hadn't really seen before. And I think you know, that demand was even more extraordinary because it was mostly domestic resident demand. And again, as I said at the beginning, the prime markets are driven you know, at least half by international buyers. So this was just domestic demand. Now, what I should say is that demand wasn't universal. And this is really important to the market going forward. It was really focused on houses and houses with large gardens or proximity to green space. That's what people wanted. Flats were out of vogue. Houses were very much the focus. Um, in terms of values, it was interesting. In the COVID lockdown, that first lockdown, there was talk of what would the discount be? What would be the market when we came out? And then suddenly that demand evaporated any discussion around discounts. And we've just seen this, this real demand pushing up values in certain areas. So obviously the headline grabbing one was the escape to the country narrative. And we've seen the country market in the UK rise by upwards of 15%, depending on pockets, Cornwall, Cotswolds, places like that being particularly popular. You've seen the outskirts of London, those areas which you know, have the big houses, the green spaces, they've grown five to 10%. But even prime inner London, which is where I think Shirley and Simon might be looking, those popular areas for US buyers, Holland Park, St. John's Wood near the US school and others, you know, they've still seen huge demand. But broadly in prime, the market's been flat in terms of growth. Now, of course, there are pockets. You might say Holland Park with its houses up 5%, Marylebone, more of a flat market, maybe down 4 or 5%, but these are marginal numbers. So really the picture for buyers is it's been flat. Now, in terms of rental stock, I'll mention that briefly as they're renting now. Um, rental markets have seen a big fall. Rental values fell about 20% coming out of that first lockdown. And that was really driven by a massive influx of supply as the short-let market fell away and people moved those properties onto the longer-term market just as demand evaporated because students and corporate relocations were no longer interested in renting. So you had that, that dynamic. Um, I think in terms of forecasts looking forward in the market, there's a real sense of positivity. I think um, in terms of opportunity, 
the leading commentators and Savills have said this very strongly, are, are signaling a buy rating for London. You know, Savills have said in writing, it's a when, not if, growth comes to the London market. So I think that's very strong support. And in terms of why they say that, I think there are, are three key reasons. One is we haven't had the growth since the pandemic that other leading cities have had. So whether that's Canada or the US or China, they've seen 10, 20, 25% growth annualized, whereas we've seen a very benign market. You've also seen um, that in prior pandemics, we've seen a market rise 60, 70% in the buildup to a crisis. In this crisis, we saw actually a fall off in the market, both in volumes and values. So the market's had a tough time leading into this crisis. And then most importantly, probably for our listeners today is, is the currency play, which is if you combine the currency falls and the value falls generically, I should say generic value falls, then you, for US dollar buyers, London is th circa 30% cheaper than it was in 2014. And that's a very meaningful stat for buyers now. Yeah. And that will drive a lot of this international demand mm -hmm. in the coming 12 months. Excellent. Thank you, Richard. Um, so uh, in terms of first steps for Shirley and Simon, um, they haven't purchased property here before in the UK. So uh, they might be unaware of the, the steps involved in order to purchase the property in terms of the legal process. Um, uh, Richard, I wonder if you could just summarise the, the steps that Shirley and Simon will need to be aware of. Okay, I'll try and do this the short version as you asked. Uh, my wife would definitely say I can do the long version. So here's the short version. Uh, in transactional steps, there are three stages, three key stages. And I know it will differ from the US markets and other markets. The first is the offer stage when you actually offer formally on a property. And that stage is not binding on either you or the vendor. So it's really Which important. It will be shocking to Shirley as an American. Yeah, and, and, and it's the most risk moment. You've emotionally found the property you love. You've fallen in love with it. You've got to a mm. point of making the, the offer. And it's been accepted, which is a fantastic moment, but there's nothing binding. So at this point, you've got to work really, really hard to put your team in place and work towards signing of a contract, which is the key legal step. And at signing, you're committed to the purchase. You put 10% down and you can't get out of the purchase. And if you do, you'll lose that 10%, but you can also be sued for more than that 10%. So the key is never sign the contract unless you're absolutely ready. So by then, between your offer being accepted and signing, you've got to do all your due diligence on the legal side, all your due diligence on the survey side. You've got to put your financing in place so that when you sign, you're absolutely ready for that transaction. And you sign 10% down, have your champagne, and then at a date in the future that will be part of a negotiation of the offer will be a completion date when you actually move in and you pay the balance of the purchase price or draw down your, your bank funding. Excellent. Very helpful. So, uh, Jamie, over to you, please. Um, so um, Shirley's going to be putting in the sort of the majority of the funds right. for this property purchase. Um, I guess in your experience, there's different ways to own a property. We've got an American here. We've got a non-American. So, right. so, so what would you advise Shirley and Simon to do in terms of holding the property, in terms of ownership, um, and bearing in mind there's a deposit and a mortgage, what would you advise? So I think it really depends on what their long-term plans are for the property. If this is their forever home, they don't think they're ever going to sell it. You know, you have different structuring options. I mean, the classic structure for married people is, of course, joint with right of survivorship. Um, that's actually very useful for married couples, particularly if something happened to one of them. Um, you know, 
if, if, if something happened to Shirley or Simon, then the property automatically passes to the survivor. So there's a very nice probate avoidance element to that type of property ownership. And that's really why married couples choose that. I think the complicating factor here with Shirley being an American is that she obviously has an exposure to US tax, even though she's in the UK, even though the property is a UK property, um, US citizenship is a sticky thing that way. So as long as she remains a US citizen, she has to worry about that. So what we would, you know, assuming that they're coming to talk to us, uh, you know, Richard saying, have the right team in place, get the right advice, assuming they're coming to talk to us in advance, we might advise something like a tenants in common approach where Shirley takes back an interest in the property equal to what she actually yep. funded to the purchase price. So if that's 80%, 90%, you know, Simon would just take his share. Um, <clears throat> mortgages tend to complicate that a bit more. So if they do have bank funding here, if they do have a mortgage, then we, you know, you need to kind of factor that into it and who yep. will be paying the mortgage going forward. Um, I think definitely, you know, I'm, I'm a U.S. tax lawyer, not a U.K. tax lawyer, but, you know, someone like Shirley, who's maybe not yet deemed domiciled, might be asking, can I shield this from sure. U.K. inheritance tax? Yeah. Um, basically, no. You know, I, I would <laughs> defer to you and Hugh mm-hmm. probably more on the U.K. tax side, but, you know, the U.K. has brought in so many rules over the years that it just make it between ATED and GAR and all the rest of it that it's just not attractive to put things in a structure. In a structure yeah, yeah. So we would be looking at some kind of personal ownership, probably a tenants in common approach because Shirley is an American. Um, but it, it really would be about sitting down and talking to Shirley and Simon about, you, you know, long-term plans yeah. for the property. Excellent. Excellent. And, um, and Hugh, in terms of funding the deposit, um, if Shirley needs to bring some money over from the US, what, what would you, what would your sort of advice be to her? So, I mean, if we're talking, you know, if she's going to be putting seventy percent, eighty percent of the, of the deposit up, you're talking quite big amounts when you're talking about you know the high end of the market. So, perhaps you know, Shirley's looking to reach out to the US. Perhaps she's got had some funds there that she wants to bring in to fund the purchase. Um, a lot of people are under the impression that the mere act of transferring funds from the US to the UK mm. is automatically going to trigger a UK tax charge. You know, that simply isn't the case. It was certainly not always the case. Um, I get calls all the time from people saying, I'm inheriting money from yeah. my parents in the US. How much is the UK charging yeah. for it? Yeah. And you have to say it's Absolutely. nothing. <laughs> um, but um, I would certainly uh, recommend that Shirley shops around for a decent uh, exchange rate because you can really get stung on that. Yeah. But from a UK tax perspective, it's entirely possible to, for someone to bring funds from the US to the UK and have no UK tax considerations. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say, for example, that Shirley, you know, all she has offshore in the US are pre-UK arrival income and gains or gains that she has accrued while UK resident, but which she has already reported in the UK and she's already paid UK tax on. So both those amounts are deemed clean. So if Shirley wants to bring those to the UK to fund the deposit, she's perfectly free to do so and there'll be no UK tax considerations. Complications arise, however, if Shirley has made use of her non-DOM status 
and claimed the remittance yeah. basis of taxation mm. in any year since she's arrived in the UK. So what the remittance basis of taxation does, it enables Shirley to exclude from UK taxation offshore income and gains that she's accrued within a year of residence as long as she doesn't bring those income and gains to the UK or otherwise benefit from them while UK resident. So that's very important because the implications of this is suddenly, yes, she's got some, she may have some clean funds, but if, you, if, if you've excluded amounts from UK taxation and haven't brought them into the UK, then you've suddenly got unclean funds as well as clean funds offshore. So if do, she was... Do you find that a lot of Americans not really knowing the implications of that do take advantage of that first free seven years? Absolutely. Because I yeah. have, you know, once you have to start paying for it, 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 for a lot of Americans, it's not worth it. Correct. Right? Yeah. Because you're paying worldwide U.S. tax anyway. Good point. But, you know, that that first seven years, it's just this freebie and yeah. you go, oh, what a great deal. The first seven and years is essentially a grace period. How... Yeah that's going to affect you going forward. You don't realize sort of what trouble you've created yourself yeah. down the line. So those first seven years, the only cost to claim the remittance basis is the loss of a tax-free personal allowance right. and a the loss of a annual capital gains exemption. However, if Shirley's the main breadwinner and she's earning just over £125,000 a year anyway, she wouldn't even get access to that personal allowance. Right. So that's not a loss to her. And as she's a US person losing out on a UK gains exemption, potentially all that's doing is re replacing you know, UK tax with US tax. So it doesn't really help her. So the cost can essentially be negligible. Um, but what, what, the, um, what, what issues are caused if she has both clean and unclean amounts offshore is that, unfortunately for um, Shirley, if, if those clean and unclean amounts get co-mingled or mixed up, um, within a single account, then she is no longer able to point at her clean funds and say, well, I'm only going to remit those, I'm not going to be subject to any UK tax implications, and I'll leave the unclean funds offshore. She can't do that because what happens is she becomes subject to the HMRC's strict mixed fund ordering rules, which often work on essentially a worst-first scenario. Yeah. So you're deemed mm. to remit unclean funds in priority to clean funds. So that can really end up with a, you know, mm. a nasty surprise mm. on the UK tax side. Yeah. Ideally, you know, in a perfect world, Shirley would have reached out to you know, sophisticated tax advisors like ourselves and you know, before, before coming to the UK, ideally, and we could have you know, looked at carrying out some sort of account segregation to really separate those clean and un potentially you know, forward unclean funds. Um, which would facilitate her being able to bring funds into the UK in the future in a much more tax-efficient manner. However, you know, we all know people's intentions changed. I mean, Shirley could have come to the UK with you know, Simon firmly in her sights um, with the full intention to, you know... Sounds like a yeah, hunter. Slightly worried. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, poor unsuspecting Simon. But, <laughs> but that could have been the case. And she should, yeah. you know, she bought a one-way ticket... Um, yeah. I'm going to be there 10, 15, yeah. 20 years, you know, or even happily ever yeah. after. That's not always the case. So a probably a more common scenario that we see is people coming to the UK on an international work assignment, maybe mm -hmm. a couple of years. It's always for yeah. two years. Yeah, it's always for two years, indeed. 
And then, you know, they like London, they like Simon, they like someone else, they end up staying um, beyond those two years. Before you know it, you're 10, 15, 20 years down the line and you've got a big life event like um, funding a UK property purchase. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the good news for Shirley is that you know, all is not lost if she didn't carry out that tax planning before coming UK resident. It's getting the right advice, isn't it? Yeah, because like yeah. she can work with us. We can look at her, review her offshore accounts and identify those funds that actually she can bring in more tax efficiently than others, so she's not hit with a big tax charge. Yeah. Okay, I guess I guess uh, another thing that um, and Richard, you you alluded to it earlier um, that uh, our American clients um, are not always wary of is 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 how high the stamp duty is here in in, in the UK. And and of course, you mentioned that, that the changes that um, have happened uh, over stamp over duty the years. sounds like something out of the Revolutionary War. Well, it, it does. Yeah, I mean, absolutely right. It's, it's a very significant number now. You know, when you sit down with a client, you say that you might be paying 17%. You know, not in Sherlin Simon's case because yeah. they're resident, but there's three steps of that sure. stamp duty. Yeah. And that's a very significant tax on, yeah. on, on an investment. Yeah. And I think it's especially, um, uh, you know, you've alluded to it there, um, you know, people who are non-resident um, purchasing UK property, we haven't got the case here where you've got that 2% stamp duty here. But... but I guess if if Shirley or Simon own another residential property, that, yeah. um, you know the, the, the implications there, Hugh. Um, yeah, in I mean, terms of the stamp duty, that can put her up into you know fifteen yeah. percent um, yeah. flat rate. Well, yeah. and, and I think this comes back to this this point. You know, we were talking about three stages: you got offer, signing, and, and completion. But you know, offer is very emotional, and you don't want to lose out on it. But you're a high risk until exchange. So the key is to go from offer to exchange as quickly as sure. you can. Yeah. And if you're not prepared, if you haven't had these conversations around tax in terms mm. of capital and bringing money onshore, if you haven't understood what your stamp duty might be and therefore how that impl implicates on your budget, you know, what can you afford to mm. actually buy? Yeah. You know, if you haven't got your mortgage funding in place, if you start to do that when your offer is accepted, it's going to take you too long to transact. Yeah. And that, that is, you know, we're talking transactional times of five, ten days. Um, in terms wow. of offer to exchange. Now, the longer it goes, the more risk there is to the transaction on both sides. Yeah. So it, it's so key to have those conversations, understand the tax, understand if there's anything you mm -hmm. can do around a second home. So, you know, you guys will know much better than me, but, you know, whether you can sell another property first, because maybe that, you know, it isn't, you know, emotionally important to the family and actually it's low value, but it's going to trigger an extra 3% on yeah. your on your stamp duty mm -hmm. bill and, and therefore get rid of it first mm -hmm. or, you know, getting your capital sorted out. Yeah. These things are really important. Yeah, and, or maybe using a window after after you've purchased your 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 principal residence where you can sell the other property and, and get a get a reclaim of the stamp duty back. Um, so, uh, Jamie, um, I guess Simon and Shelley have recently got married and, um, you know, they're looking to buy this property. I, I guess it's a it's a pretty good time to do a will. If, if wills haven't been done. Yeah, if wills um, haven't been done already. And um, for a lot of people, this is this is one of those triggering events, right? It's either children yep. or major purchase. Yep. And this is when clients call to say, I really think I need a will now. Um, so what we were, you know, when we were talking about the structuring options and this joint ownership with right of survivorship, which is likely to be probably inappropriate for Shirley and Simon, that that wouldn't require you to have a will because that's going to pass automatically, mm. you know, if one mm. of you passes away. But if we go with, you know, this tenants in common approach where you do have effectively a divisible share of the property, yeah. it's a specific percentage, then it is important to have a will that says 
yes, I want to pass my share of the property either to my spouse or to, you know, the Battersea Cats and Dogs home. Yeah, I sure. mean, that will be interesting for the <laughs> husband. Um, Simon will enjoy all those pets, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, that that is important. And actually part of the structuring plays into that conversation with Shirley and Simon around Shirley's U.S. estate tax exposure and her ability to transfer assets to Simon and where her, you know, overall assets are because it might be that we need to build something like a qualified domestic trust into Shirley's will so that we can qualify for U.S. estate tax exemption for Simon. And the only way to get Shirley's interest in the property into that QDOT is by having this tenants in common divisible share approach. Um, And so, yes, absolutely, you know, drawing up a proper will for them is a a good idea at this stage. And and, and a question that we get asked a lot is, is do I need, do I need a US will and a UK will? I I get asked that all the time. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, you, you don't, you definitely don't. And the, reason for that is quite simple, which is that the U.S. and the U.K. are both common law systems. Right, yeah. the, the rules are similar enough. Um, they both have testamentary freedoms. So when you think of the continent, you know, like France, where you have forced airship, right, you don't have testamentary freedoms. So, you know, you do often need a separate will for jurisdictions yeah. like that. But the U.S. and the U.K., you can have a will that works across both. I mean, not to pitch too hard, but Withers is you know, particularly capable of doing that type of yeah. work. Um, because I think if you are, if you are someone like Shirley and Simon, you know, Shirley might have a U.S. lawyer, a yeah. U.S. estate planning family lawyer back in the U.S. who says, yeah, that's fine. I'll do you a will, but I'm going to carve out all of your U.K. assets because I don't really want to touch that. And she goes to a U.K. lawyer who says, yeah, that's fine, but you're an American and I'm scared of you, so I'm going to carve out all of your U.S. assets. Yeah. And sometimes those wills work, but sometimes they don't. And sometimes they, I mean, I had a client who came in and said, I have two separate wills. And I said, well, one of them actually revoked the other. Oh, right, okay. So you only have one will, but you're actually in test state in the U.S. Yeah. now. And that was quite shocking. Mm-hmm. So there are dangers to that approach, and I think... What, what we try to do as much as possible is do a single will so that there's no inconsistency across, you know, the U.S. and the U.K. Good. Yeah, thank you. So um, the next step for Shirley and Simon, they purchased their property. They're very happy living there. Um, they are paying a mortgage on the property. Um, uh, Hugh, perhaps you could tell us about the, the tax reliefs that are available in, in the U.S. Um, for for Shirley paying yes. the mortgage. Yes, so... Although you don't get any tax release in the UK, in the US you do actually get a, a deduction for the interest or a potential deduction for the interest, but it's limited to the first $750,000 of debt. So although that goes in as an itemised deduction, there's been a, a general sort of attack on itemised deductions that was introduced a few years back by the Trump administration. Yeah. So although typically we used to see a lot of people benefiting from this, nowadays with the increase in the standard deduction and the large decrease or cap of the, uh, the SALT uh, state and local taxes deduction, you don't see many people, or you certainly see fewer people, taking uh, a benefit for this. Yeah. 
another point on mortgages um, that could be helpful for re relief purposes, and this is something that Jamie you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, UK inheritance tax. You know, the mere right. mention of UK inheritance tax um, to a US person is enough to sort of strike fear into their heart. You know, Make them move to Jersey. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> done. So the reason why that is is in the US, you're benefiting from a you know 11.7 million. Uh, U.S. estate tax exemption. Compare that to the measly £325,000 um, IHT exemption that we have on this side. You know, that's a huge delta. Fortunately for Shirley, she's not going to be subject to UK inheritance tax on her worldwide estate until she's been resident in the UK for at least 15 out of the last 20 UK tax years. However, before then, if you've got UK property, UK status property, which this home will be, and that automatically comes becomes into the comes within the scope of UK inheritance yeah. tax. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, if we're talking about you know a high value property here, you know any way that Shirley can reduce that exposure and Simon as well because it's, it's something for both of them um, will certainly be worthwhile. And one of those ways is by taking out a mortgage on that property because that re reduces the value of the property that's subject to UK inheritance yeah. tax and is is, is a clear saving. So slightly going back to the funding of the property, this may mean that she has to bring in less funds from the US to the UK to fund the purchase of the property, which means that she's having less UK inheritance tax exposure. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, I appreciate I keep banging the drum about being ready and prepared, but my understanding is if you're gonna use that debt as a, a mitigant for inheritance tax, it needs to be in place at completion. So it can't be a refinancing down the line of your equity. It needs to be in place at completion. Absolutely. And another consideration when taking out uh, a mortgage for a UK home, typically you're taking out a sterling mortgage. So sterling mortgages uh, can give rise to what's known as the um, foreign exchange rate gain for US purposes. You know, the, the dreaded foreign exchange rate gain, as some people refer to it as. So. This happens because I'm going, to, I'm going to keep the math simple for yep. Carlo's benefit. So if we take out a mortgage <laughs> of £100,000 sterling yep. when the exchange rate was 1.8 to 1. Yep. The good old days, yep. as mm. I call them. Mm. So from an IRS perspective, of course, everything happens in dollars. Mm -hmm. Shirley has taken out a debt of $180,000. Yep. What happens when the, or if, the, um, the you can say when. Yeah. It yeah. did happen it, it, here. It happened. <laughs> so what happened was, obviously, in the last few years, the dollar has strengthened against the pound. If she was to redeem that mortgage, pay it back, and the exchange rate is 1.3, then the IRS will say, well, you know, well done, congratulations. You've made a $50,000 gain because right. you've, it's only cost you $150,000 to repay back that mortgage. Mm -hmm. And this, this is a paper gain, Hugh, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And you know, this may happen on re full redemption, as in on sale of the property, yeah. but it also may happen due to the mechanics of refinancing. Yeah. Because right. often when you refinance a mortgage, there is actual a proper redemption, mm. but all, potentially all that's happened is you, you're rolling it over. Yeah. So you don't have anything, you know, any cash gain out of it in your hands, but from a US perspective, you've created a $50,000 gain yeah and not only that they're not going to tax it as a long-term gain they're going to tax it at, as ordinary income so up to 37 percent 
currently, but if Biden has his way, up to 39.6%. Yeah. We so saw is, this with a lot of clients in the last few years when mm. interest rates in the UK came way down. Sure, sure. And they all said, oh, I'm going to refinance my mortgage because yeah. I'm going to get a much better interest rate. And this issue reared its head really badly. I think what we found, and I don't know if you found this as well, that with quite a few Americans, they'd had an excess of foreign tax credits in the UK that were right in the right kind of ordinary yeah. income bucket yeah. so that at the end of the day, maybe they didn't owe a huge amount of US tax, but that was still something that needed to be worked through and thought yeah, through very carefully. Absolutely. If, if you're working with sophisticated advisors, who we can actually nurture the right foreign tax credits over the right. years. A lot of people go down the route of, <laughs> right, I'm just going to claim the foreign income exclu exclusion remove that taxable income, but you're also removing some of those foreign tax credits. Exactly. So you may th be thinking that your tax preparer is doing you a favour, keeping your tax affairs simple, but if they've been essentially restricting your carry forward tax credits over the years and then an, you know, an unexpected event like this happens, you, you may not have the foreign tax credits to shield it. But absolutely, you know, if there's, there can be planning in place, as long as you get the right advisors involved early enough that can either mit mitigate or completely remove uh, mm. the, the unfavourable US tax implications of this. And presumably this is quite an issue because most mortgage products have a two or five year Correct. fixed period or, or, or a preferential mm -hmm. rate that yeah. then flips out of that into yeah. a floating. But also private banks, quite a few do five year term loans. Correct. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. you are storing up a problem for the future. Exactly. So it is. Yeah. It's, and, and it's, and it's, as you said, it's something that uh, American clients don't necessarily think about until the time when they're thinking about remortgaging or they have already remortgaged mm -hmm. and you've got to deliver that news. So I mean, imagine a dry tax charge like that. It's, yeah. it's pretty It's irritating. an absolute, yeah. yeah. And you can't control the exchange rate. No. I mean, you, you can't even pretend to predict where the exchange rate is going to go. So you can't live your life around yeah. Correct. trying yeah. to predict yeah. that. Yeah, you can't control the exchange rate, but you can kind of plan for it. Yeah. With the, exactly. You know, plan for the unexpected. Um, by taking good advice early on. Okay, so um, the next and perhaps the, the, the final step in the process is that um, Shirley and Simon, they, they bought this home. Um, uh, they, they've had a couple of children and they want to have more. So um, they're going to have to look for a bigger place. So they are thinking about selling their property that they bought all these years ago. So uh, again, Hugh and Jamie, we've got an uh, American here married to a non-American, and um, we've got to think about what the implications are, both from a US tax perspective and a, a UK tax perspective. Um, Jamie, maybe you would like to cover the US side first. Yeah, I mean, as an American, you know, Shirley is subject to US income tax, no matter where she sells her assets. Um, if they did go with that tenants in common approach that we talked about with the with the purchase um you know Shirley may have quite a large interest in the property um as an American our exemptions for primary residents are a lot less favorable than the UK uh, CGT yeah. exclusions and so Shirley will be limited to only being able to exclude two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of the gain yep. from the sale of this property. Now, if it's, you know, a prime property, which grew as we expected, then $250,000 yep. 
particularly in dollars, yeah. is just not going to get her very far. Yeah. So we do have, you know, probably quite a huge U.S. income tax implication for Shirley. When we were structuring the property and if Shirley was taking that much larger interest in the property because of her contribution, we probably would have been advising her that over the years, you know, make some annual gifts to Simon. That's either using the increased sort of U.S. spousal gift exemption amount that she has because Simon is not an American, so she can't just transfer assets to him um, completely without tax. Um, And in that way, we may have shifted more of the value of the property over to Simon and particularly over a longer term, you know, if they held on to the property for 10, 15 years, you can shift a lot of value through these annual gifts. Um, And that's, you know, that's actually pretty simple, low tech planning, but can have a big impact on the back end where you're facing the U S income tax charge um, and, and allows Simon then, to hopefully take advantage of the more generous UK okay. capital gains tax sure. regime. And, and Jamie, you, you allude to a very good point there about the $250,000 exemption. So, yes. so here, you know, we've, we've got a property that's been bought in Sterling. Yeah. So, so I guess it's the same sort of thing as Hugh was saying earlier, depending which way the exchange rate goes can... Oh, absolutely. I mean... Really cause that $250,000. You have people who... I, I have to... And I know you were making fun of Carlo for not understanding math, but I always have to think through this to make sure that, but you do have people who are selling locally at a loss, but with a yeah, gain, sure. um, you know, just because of the exchange, exchange rate. rate. Yeah. And, yeah. and yes, absolutely. So another, another thing to bear in mind. And then Hugh, on, on the UK side, so Jamie's um, given us a very good understanding of the US side. How does it work on the UK side? Yeah, so I guess as we've got a UK property here, I think the, the first jurisdiction you should sort of think about is the UK because they're going to have the first right to tax if there is a tax charge yeah. due. Um, in the UK, you have a private residence relief, extremely generous, um, certainly encourages home ownership. But essentially what the private residence relief does is as long as you've been resident and living in the property throughout its ownership, it's entirely possible for, for the relief on sale to completely cover any gain. Yeah. accrued yeah. during the ownership. So I guess complications arise if they vacate the property um, more than nine months before the end, uh, before, they, before they sell it. And the reason I say more than nine months is because you, you're, you're able to get relief on periods of physical um, occupation of the property, but there are also some periods of deemed occupation. Yeah. And the most famous of those are you know, the first and not last nine months of the property. Yeah. But if you're able to add all those together and they're able to cover the full gain, yeah. you, know, you don't have to pay anything to HMRC. Yeah. But then you turn, as a US citizen, you turn over to the IRS and say, okay, you know, let's do the calculation for you guys. Yeah. And I think that's an important point that, that the UK does have the first taxing, right? And so yeah. we look at that first. But, you know, some... Some people, I think, misunderstand what the U.S.-U.K. treaty does, mm. and they think that it will protect them from U.S. tax. Yeah. Yeah. But Good as point. a U.S. citizen, it's not one or the other. You're yeah. still subject yeah. to U.S. tax yeah. worldwide. The treaty doesn't get you out of that. And, yeah, and let's talk about the scenario where that 
private residence relief does not cover the full extent of the gain throughout the whole ownership. So let's say it only covers half, and you've got 50% of the gain subject to UK tax. What's it subject? What rate is it subject to? It's subject to 28%. Um, you are paying that 20% over to HMRC, and then should the US calculation also give rise to a tax charge, then the IRS will honour that tax credit. Yeah. Right. So, so I guess you know, Hugh, that's that's a good point. So you've you've got if it's their if it's their principal residence and they've been occupying it um, as their main residence for the entire period of ownership, no UK tax, but potentially US tax. Potentially US and tax. Um, there's some great planning that you thought about there, um, Jamie, with sort of you know giving some of the ownership to the non-US person. As long as you like your spouse. Yeah. Well, in, indeed. Yeah. Um, and then and then I, I guess Hugh, what you were talking about earlier there with with the you know, having a UK tax bill, that, that might occur if, if Shirley and Simon were to, to leave the property and maybe rent it out or something like that for a few years and then sell it. So you've got a period yes. of non-occupation there. Absolutely. And if your relief does not fully cover the gain, since I think 6th of April 2020, even if you're a UK resident and you're selling a UK property and it's just, just if it's not covered fully covered by that relief, then you also have to file a capital gains tax return, extremely tight turnaround time, especially for us tax repairers. Yeah. You've also got to pay the tax, or at least an estimate of it. Yeah. And, and I guess, lastly, we, we do see where some clients, um, Jamie, uh, go back to the States and perhaps um, they need to go back because they've been reassigned to go back to the States and they haven't right. actually got round to, to saying their property has been on the market, mm-hmm. but it hasn't, it hasn't sold yet. And I guess that client could be back in New York or California and they've, they, don't they, go to California. They've, they've, That's the <laughs> first piece of advice. Don't move to Weather California. Weather might be nice. Yeah. Beautiful. But I, it's but a trap. Um, but I guess the, there that. you've got you've got another level of. We have taxation. very good California offices, <laughs> by the way, so we can help people with that. But no, you're absolutely right. You you might be thinking, well, I'm an American. I'm taxed, you know, federally anyway. Yeah. No big deal. Move back to the states. But you know, states like New York, California, have extremely, you know, high state level income taxes. And especially where, you know, you might think you're in the clear because, oh, I exchanged. And so, you know, there's some kind of event for UK tax purposes that's already occurred. But actually, the completion is the relevant date for US tax purposes and for state tax purposes. And so if you are resident in a state with an actual income tax, which there are quite a number of them, and they're they're attractive states to be for yeah. a lot of people and our clients, um, then y- you might have unwittingly uh, had a state income tax exposure. Yeah, yeah. And you're right about a lot of the practical elements of this that tie in with the tax stuff. You know, we sit when we're buying properties, and U.S. clients are returning, or U.S. owners are returning to the states or moving somewhere else. You know, they might be trying to work out is now a good time to sell. You know, in the midst of sure. the, the post-lockdown, they might have been nervous about that. If their property's not the, the genre of what everybody's looking for right now, an apartment, they might feel like, I, I'll just hold on to that. But there are big consequences tax-wise in the UK and US, as you're saying. And also uh-huh. the other thing is, it takes time to sell property now. The average property is taking six to 12 months to sell. Right. Wow. You know, when I say there's competition, if you've got a 10 out of 10 property, I think at night Frank's this, which I liked, if you've got a 10 out of 10 property right now, there's competition and it's going to trade quickly. If you've got a seven out of 10, not so much. You know, people are holding back, they're nervous about pricing. So, you know, maybe it'll take you six, 12, 18 months yeah. to sell. 
So you need to be thinking about that tax way out in advance, not sort of three months before you go and say, let's sell it. Mm, yeah. Because then you've got the problem of returning to New York or California, heaven forbid, and you, you may have created a trap for yourself. Yeah. I'm yes. nothing against California. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So um, as we sort of come to a conclusion, um, perhaps we can talk about the benefits of seeking advice. And, and Jamie, perhaps you could give us uh, a bit about your role and your, your experience with us and how you help those clients. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, Shirley and Simon are sort of my typical client, actually. You know, Shirley being an American, I I work as a U.S. private client lawyer in London. Um, I work with people who have some kind of American connections. So if that's U.S. citizenship like Shirley or it's U.S. investments, um, but aren't purely domestic in any way. So everything that I do has some kind of cross-border element. Yeah. And U.S.-U.K. planning, I would say, is really, um, without calling it my specialism, is really my focus. And so I, I think that there's a lot that I feel like I could help Shirley and Simon with, you know, when it, it, it uh, just from structuring the ownership of the property, potential gifting over the years, the estate planning, um, you know, making sure that they have, if they have kids, making sure that they have wills in place that, you know, do what they want them to do for their children. Um, and also just, I think, more generally helping Shirley to kind of navigate what it means to be an American yeah. in the UK. Um, and, you know, potentially talking to Shirley about do you really want to hold on to your U.S. citizenship forever. Yeah. Um, that is something that, you know, I've, I've helped a lot of people give up their U.S. citizenship over my years working here. Um, and it is something that I still get a lot of people interested in talking to me about. Excellent. Thank you very much. And Richard, um, just sort of your role in your business and... Um, you know, how you can help and add value to Shirley and Simon. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, our core and sole specialism is helping clients to acquire property in prime and super prime London. And we're lucky to be market leaders at it. And I would always say a client should appoint a buying agent, uh, an advisor on their side of the table, as opposed to the sell side. Um, luckily, it's not a volume business, so, so we won't advise all, all comers. But I think there's real value to having an advisor, particularly if you're not as familiar with the market. But even if you are, uh, broadly, that, that's knowledge of the market. So, you know, if you don't know the areas you might want to move to, what would, what would work well for you, your budget, you know, the, the type of things you want to be connected into. But also knowledge is key to value and liquidity in the future. Because what we've seen over the last five or six difficult years is that the best-in-class properties have held their values. They haven't fallen the 20%. They haven't become illiquid. The sort of middle market is more challenged and there's some truly dreadful properties at the bottom, which we hope your clients and our, well, certainly our clients would never buy, and they might be off 40, 50%. So that knowledge piece is, is key. I think access is very important in this market. You know, most of, not all of the properties we buy are off market. And there's a whole podcast on what off market means, so I yeah. won't say that now. But, you know, it's the properties we buy, the best properties are not on the portals. They're not on Rightmove. They're not on Zoopla. So, you know, that access piece is all about credibility. Now, we bring credibility to our buyers, but if a buyer's not represented, it's very important they, they make sure they're credible buyers. 
I think then it's about value and offer and strategy around that and negotiation. And there's lots of that as well. But don't just discount the asking price. You know, we will give clarity to what a property is actually worth. And that gives you strength and confidence in negotiation. It also helps to understand how a bank valuation may play into that and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then there's the transactional elements we talked about, you know, managing through that stage of offer to exchange and, and, and winning those competitive processes and delivering on, the, on the, the due diligence phase and through to completion. So, you know, we bring that for buyers we represent. And, and I think that gives them a huge advantage in the market. But I'm also always happy to talk to your clients and give them a sense of the market and uh, if they're going to, if they're going to embark on a purchase. And I, spe- I guess in, in your role, Richard, you're sort of bringing, bringing the right people around the table in this, in this sort of uh, predicament. Yeah, and, and I feel like that's going to be the sort of the thing at the end of the podcast that people say, I wish you hadn't kept saying that, but I keep saying it. Yeah. You know, preparation in this market is absolutely critical. You know, unique properties and best in class are competitive. And, you know, we did one recently in uh, Holland Park. There were six cash buyers, you know, it was in the high teens. And, you know, you've got to be ready to transact and you've got to show you're deliverable. So there's no point then having a conversation about, oh, I need some financing. Which bank shall I talk to? Or, or, you know, where can I get my capital? Is it clean, unclean? Have I thought about the will? Have I thought about all those other things that we've talked about? That is too late to be having that conversation then. You need to have it before then. And, And so, you know, getting the right team around you of good advisors, and we've seen that as well when it comes to a sale or, or letting or anything else, is, is, is fundamental. Good advice. And Hugh? Yes, yeah, so I think from what we've discussed today, you know, there's certainly many aspects to this. You're not just going to need tax preparers, you're also going to need tax advisors. And even better, a firm that does both, like Buzzacott. It's very difficult to implement tax-efficient tax planning after the event, so do reach out to advisors before as early as possible that's absolutely key because you know you're going to save money and you're going to be able to plan for every eventuality and also plan flexibility into your plans because you know everyone knows you know real life is not a case study intentions change change and then change again and as a general note i would just say you know get the right advice from the right people because it can really help to reduce the stress of you know big life events like buying your first home well, thank you very much to our speakers today uh, for all their interesting insights. And uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Um, plan your next step by listening to um, our podcast series, which includes various topics from moving to the UK to setting up a business and much more. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us today. Thank, thank, you. thank you. This Stepping Stones podcast is brought to you by Buzzacott, a top 20 UK accountancy firm based in London, the team in Hong Kong specialising in US and UK tax, financial planning, corporate business services and audit.